Welcome back to the Format PLJ Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Ho. Today, I talked to film critic and PhD candidate in cinema and media studies at the University of Southern California, Pierre Labuza. We talked about how entertainment lawyers, through the use of contracts, was able to change the studio system from the 1940s to the 1970s. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the For My PLJ podcast. Our guest today, Pierre Labuza, is a PhD candidate in cinema and media studies at the University of Southern California and a John E. Rovensky Fellow in U.S. Business and Economic History. His research interests include Hollywood and media industry historiography, legal history, political economy, art cinema, and cinephilia. He has published works in The Velvet Light Trap, Film Quarterly, Mediascape, Sight and Sound, and the Los Angeles Review of Books and currently serves as assistant book review editor for the Journal of Cinema and Media Studies. He has also published as a film critic for Variety, The Village Voice, and Filmmaker Magazine, and he hosts one of my favorite film podcasts, The Cinephiliacs Podcast, in which his George Eastman Museum episode ranks amongst my favorite episodes of 2018. Thank you for joining us, Pierre Labuza. I'm, I'm very, very glad to be here. Thank you for the invite. Yeah, um, so the reason why I want you to come on the show today is because throughout your podcast, you talk a little bit about your PhD dissertation, which is exploring the legal profession in Hollywood. Can you just give us a brief summary of what your research is on? Sure. So uh, my dissertation is about the, in the most blunt terms, is about the history of Hollywood law firms and how lawyers innovated the industry in the post-war era. Um Basically, what it interrogates is it looks at this sort of transition that Hollywood goes from from the 1930s and 40s, where people know it as this era of the classical age of Hollywood with these five studios. They're putting out lots and lots and lots of films to eventually what becomes the new Hollywood of the 70s, where it's sort of driven by these innovative directors, people you might know like Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg, Francis Ford Coppola, where, you know, we recognize the 1970s of Hollywood as this artist-driven era. And the question I sort of interrogate through that is how do we get from one era to a next? And a lot of people have taken this question on. Um, but what I use is the idea of the lawyer and the law as a sort of merging of the business interests of Hollywood with these sort of artistic uh, players who really, really want to get their foot in the game that was very different from the classical era. So I look at a couple law firms and particularly I look through writers, directors, and stars and look at how they negotiate with studios and particularly the era of what I call the deal making and the contract as this place where artists and economic interests find a way to align themselves and develop a new system of Hollywood that's all around sort of contractual relations um, that merges the ideas of business and art together. Now, I think a lot of people listening to this podcast probably does not know exactly how the old Hollywood studio yep. system works. So can you tell, talk to me a little bit about what the old Hollywood system was like in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s? Right. So, OK, so going back to let's just start in the silent era when films were silent and the people moved to Hollywood and start making films there in the 1910s because the better weather, you can just work uh, all year round. Labor is cheaper there and there's not as much regulation as there was in New York and New Jersey where films have been being made. And eventually you develop uh, basically what a lot of people describe as similar to the Ford factory style 
style that the studios as are built, these are things like Paramount, MGM, Warner Brothers, Universal, is they developed this Ford factory model where films are just being made constantly in a factory style where it's top-down, regulated sort of, you know, just uh, there's different levels of labor and you just push things through a system so you can make film after film after film. Scripts are written this way. There's a great article I would recommend uh, by Professor Janet Steiger written in the 1980s. uh, She teaches at UT Austin called Tame Writers and Corporate Authorship. That's all about how screenplays get developed in this era because it's sort of about making it a factory model where you can just create repeatability with a little bit of innovation. Um, The most important development that happens during the 20s and 30s is there's vertical integration in these five studios. So they're um, producing the films, they're owning, uh, they're distributing them to theaters, and they also own the major theaters of the era. They own the major downtown theaters, you know, the first run theaters where you get your big schmaltzy premieres where, you know, you can pay $2.50 for a ticket, which would have been a lot compared to, say, like the 10 cent theaters in middle of Kansas City. And then for the smaller theaters that they don't own, they're doing a process called block booking, where they say have a set of 12 films. One stars an actor, say, like Catherine Hepburn, who's a big money maker, and the other 11 are kind of lower B movies, what have you. And they're forced, these theaters, to buy that package of films just so they can get the one moneymaker so without any of these others. So the studios actually run this model that's sort of where they can just produce kind of whatever they want. And they're producing a lot of films. We're talking about 700, 800 films by one studio every year from basically the late 20s all the way up to about 1946, 1947. And so it's just a sort of, you know, a barrage of films coming at you and this is of course the era of great stars we think of like I mentioned Catherine Hepburn but Cary Grant, Joan Crawford Barbara Stanwyck Um, you know these romantic melodramas audiences are mostly made up of women and so it's kind of this golden age of Hollywood because it's all this sort of flashy beautiful time and it's also the moment in which movies of course are the dominant mode of entertainment and leisure activity for audiences you know people go to the films i think something like 80 percent of americans go to the films once a week throughout the 1930s even during the great depression um so it's just this thing where movies are the dominant form of american entertainment and also as an export to the world i think that's a pretty good description of what classical hollywood is i hope and this is also before televisions mm-hmm. were a thing that were in people's homes. So movies are, if you want visual entertainment, you're either going to the play or to the movies. And movies is such a, a much cheaper option than going to a show. Exactly, exactly. And and it's in the 1940s and 50s where my sort of research begins, where there's a few different things that we can talk about them. But one of them is television, radio, um, people just moving to the suburbs and not wanting to go into the city, mm-hmm. um, more amusement fairs pairing up, where you just have this competition of leisure activities that develop, especially in the suburbs that become so important in the post-war era of America, where movies are just no longer dominating 
happening in the same way. And you see Hollywood react to this in different ways. Uh, I think a lot of people uh, will think about films like The Ten Commandments or Ben-Hur, these giant widescreen spectacles that get developed. Cinemascope. Cinemascope, yep. The 1950s, just as, you know, anything to attract people to get back into the theaters. You still see this all the time in Hollywood yeah. of trying to get people back into movie theaters and what have or you. Or DX. Um, Yep, 40. I mean, 3D is huge in the 1950s. You know, there's the very, very brief moment of smell-o-vision. But you, um, part of the thing is that it's also really interesting during the 50s and 60s is the other things that get developed to drive people in the film, say, importing sexy films, quote-unquote, mm. from Europe, uh, and eventually, you know, small art movies that are actually a little more reflected in what's going on in television at this time. Just f- small, intimate dramas that can attract sort of an elite upper-class back to the cinema because it's now this serious art form in a way um and of course the drive-ins are popular the b movies of the 50s and 60s you know the cheap films like i was a teenage zombie or what have you um Mm -hmm. that are just about trying to get teens who now have cars to go to the drive-in the first 10 minutes are exciting and the rest of the movie is trash because they know the filmmakers know (laughs) that their audiences are mostly going to be making out by that point so i was i was wondering how artists directors, actors, even the screenwriters function under this heavy control of the studios? So it's, I think there's, there's different questions and there's different ideas. Um, during the 10s and 20s, before Hollywood studios get really, really formed, um, there's much more of a drive of creativity um, and artist control, as I think we would might think it now, mostly because there's not the hierarchy. Uh, the really great research on this, especially talking about um, women directors, women directors are very popular through the 10s and 20s. Alice Guy Blachet, Lois Weber, um, a lot of the serial stars who are starring in these adventure films that you see 20 minutes uh, every week are a lot of the directors, Mabel Norman. Um, and basically, as the studios get hierarchized, um, gender as a labor role gets sort of pushed into various different parts that are not the director role or the artist role. Uh, a lot of women become screenwriters during this time. Um, the really great research on this I just want to recommend is by Mar- Mark Garrett Cooper, his book Universal Women, and Karen mm-hmm. Mahar. I, na- I forget the name of his book, but hopefully we can provide in show notes or what have you. Yeah. Um, but um, but during this era, as Hollywood forms sort of more of a hierarchy of labor, these questions of creativity are still there, but it becomes sort of in this much more um, capitalist mode of just get the work done. Directors often through the 1930s show up on set and they're given the pages of the screenplay of whatever they're going to direct as they arrive on set. And a lot of the famous directors of the 30s and 40s, um, even ones we recognize now as some of the quote unquote great artists of that era they see it as day jobs you know this is they go to work at nine they go to five and i think um david boardwell's written a lot of this they see their work as problem solving right they need to know how to communicate the story best to the audience and solving that creates a lot of creativity but they do not see it necessarily as a role of artists there are of course people who push against that and i think a lot of that has to do with the writers from the east who go west people i'm writing a little bit right now about clifford odets and his role in hollywood in the 30s and 40s and you know he's this great playwright writing these leftist plays in new york and he comes to hollywood and a lot of people a see him as selling out and you see him sort of struggle against his role of being his own individual creator artist against this system that 
only has so much room for creativity and certainly doesn't have a role for an individual artist to create his own role. So there's just a lot of questions and certain writer directors are able to work their way up the system. Um, I guess I think the most famous example of classical Hollywood would be someone like Alfred Hitchcock, who's imported from the United Kingdom in 1940 by this independent producer, David Oselsnick, and is definitely made as like, he is an important person and we need to let him do exactly what he does. So he makes the good movies that he does and the films that he makes in the 1940s with David Oselsnick, this producer, are films like Rebecca, Notorious, Suspicion, some of now his uh, greatest works. And there's still these questions, though, often in the studio, and people have written a lot of different questions of how people operate and what sort of creative control. But I think one of the most important things is that people don't necessarily see themselves as artists. And art is always a word that Hollywood during the 30s and 40s is trying to avoid at all possible costs because art is something serious and not for the masses and, you know, a high minded. And, you know, the work that they do is about espousing great entertainment. And how does how do the studio contracts with actors and directors reflect this type of mode of production. I think one of the most important things with contracts is that they're pretty much standardized across the board, right? You know, each each actor is going to get the exact same contract unless and the only difference that's going to be uh, is the amount of money. Uh, there's a great quote from Martin Gang, who's one of the, uh, the most important lawyers who sort of starts in the 30s and becomes really important through the 40s and 50s that I write about, is when he uh, at one point was negotiating a contract, it was like he would go into the office of the mogul, the head of the studio, someone like Louis B. Mayer or Irving Thalberg uh, or Jack Warner, and all they had to negotiate was how many movies and what's the salary, and that would be the end of the negotiation phase. That was all that kind of mattered. Everything else was standard contract language. Um, and so it's sort of just this point where, you know, anyone, it's just, it's a standard employment contract. And I guess the most important thing is it's an employment contract that's often set for a year period and though with a renewable up to a certain amount of years. The big case that actually changes this that I write about in my dissertation is uh, de Havilland v. Warner Brothers. It's a California Supreme Court case in 1944. One of the big things that the studios would do is they would often suspend actors or actresses or directors for refusing to do a project or for whatever reason and they would just keep extending the time of the contract on and on. A lot of people would use the metaphor of slave labor that they could never escape their studio and they couldn't go work for any of the other studios because if you tried to do that you would get blacklisted essentially and you would be totally unable to work and gang brings this case in 1944 with olivia de Havilland, who was the star of gone with the wind one of the biggest films of all time um and basically says um there's this law written into the california labor code that's developed in 1937 that says contracts can only last seven years it's still a very important um sort of code that a lot of uh, employers especially in silicon valley still have to follow and he's like you can't suspend someone once it's seven years either party can walk away uh and so that's what 
you know, after 44, that's what a lot of people start doing is once they get through their seven years, they immediately walk away and they start to form their own independent companies or what have you. Um, but in a lot of ways through the 30s and 40s, part of that thing of artists is just because you're a slave to the studio. You work for the studio. They choose your work. They choose the films you're going to direct. They're sort of dictating most of what you can do. If you're important, you can fight against that. And the book I would recommend is Independent Stardom by Emily Carmen from Chapman University. Um, that shows how some of the female stars from the era could negotiate their contracts. They could ask for the cinematographer so they could know that they could be lit well or the costume designer so they could have the best gowns that they trusted that would make them look as great as they do and have some control on, say, director or star or script or what have you. Um, but those were the rare upset. Uh, exceptions to the era so I think the better idea is that you are just an employer of an employee an employee of the studio and there's just this kind of unequal bargaining power between the two sides of the party the studio has so much power over these young Hollywood actors mm -hmm. aspiring actors coming into the system you have to be part of the system in order to work yeah and I think one of the biggest difference that I kind of argue throughout my dissertation is what happens in the 50s and 60s is it's no longer oh you had to work for seven years and now you can you know start to negotiate or what you do if you have one big hit movie or something you can immediately walk away from anything during the 50s and 60s if you have the right lawyer and get a better deal or a negotiation for your next film when have you like you kind of have just more say and control you no longer have to go through that years and years of hard work um to my favorite directors of the classical hollywood era john ford and howard hawks eventually be have a lot of creative control um in the 1940s and get a lot of say in their things but they both started in the early 20s at um fox film corporation uh that eventually became 20th century fox uh they had to work their way up for that power they had to have hit after hit after hit you know 15 years of work versus i think someone like john frankenheimer who people know from the film the manchurian candidate i think being one of his most famous films once he has a hit film he is negotiating everywhere for each one of his films he sort of can choose a lot of the decisions that he gets made now there's a backside of that is you live or die on your last film which is still yeah. now a slogan in hollywood right you're only as good as your last film that's something that actually develops through the 1950s and 60s when your last film is your bargaining power and how good you do is how good you're going to do on your contract and before we start talking about the shift occurring um, in your paper, putting pen to paper, which is mm -hmm. a really great article. Thank you. Um, you talk to, you talk about this old Hollywood system as a time of property based resource. Can you just talk a little bit about that? So I was working with this article that was published sort of in economic theory about um, these differences between um, economic models that are property-based and economic models that are of, of an industry that are knowledge-based. And a lot of what the way that studios work in the 30s and 40s is they run by what they have. First of all, they have a studio lot, right? They have this physical space to make films that's worthwhile because they've built up all the engineering around um, 
the different sets and lighting and designs and cameras, and they just have a lot of stuff. But also the property that they have are the stars, the writers, directors, uh, all the way down to cinematographers, gaffers, editors, publicists, what have you. There's all this sort of employment labor that they own, and that's part of what makes a great studio a studio. Part of the way that, you know, um, there's only five majors that can compete and pretty much own all of Hollywood during the 1930s, um, known as the Big Five, is because they have all of that stuff and more and nobody else can develop or build that sort of bigger property or what have you. And they've got everyone on these long-term contracts. So they just own this property and that property is worthwhile. You know, Barbara Stanwyck, uh, this famous classical Hollywood actress is worth a certain amount of money to Warner brothers, right? Each one of her films can grow so much money and they can, you know, do that block booking practice that I can call, which means she's guaranteed that much money. And that ownership of, of Barbara Stanwyck, Stanwyck is valuable. And that's what sort of shifts in the 1940s and 50s where there's a lot less ownership, uh, long-term ownership toward a knowledge-based property system where it's sort of just getting the right creatives at the right moment for a certain package or deal. And I guess I'll hold off on that before we get into that. Well, speaking on that, how did that shift begin to happen from the 40s to the 50s to the 60s? Okay, so there's a few different factors and 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 they're all what i say is they're all sort of law related and that's why partially i got interested in this dissertation uh the most famous um part of this i think the part that we often describe hollywood um starting in 1948 we call it the post paramount era and that specifically refers to the antitrust decision usv paramount it's a big supreme court decision um in 1948 is basically an antitrust case that was started about in 1938 1939 it got delayed because of the war it just got held up again and again and again and basically the supreme court decided that that part of um, the uh, the vertical integration of the studios where they owned um, production, distribution, and exhibition was too much. And there's um, the Supreme Court ruled the Paramount decree because it was all it was eight major eight studios at the time, but uh, the case just got written as Paramount as the first one. Uh, basically said you have to get rid of exhibition. You can no longer own these first-run theaters in major cities like New York or whatever. They have to be owned by a different separate company. Um, and you can no longer do this block booking practice. You have to sell, sell films on an individual basis. And this really starts the uh, the changes in Hollywood a lot of ways. I mean, a lot of the studios have to break up. Um, so a studio, you know... Um, what had become what was Lowe's Metro Goldwyn Mayer becomes two separate companies, Lowe's and MGM. Lowe's now being uh, actually still one of the big theater chains across the United States, but they had to become separate companies. A lot of these things just sort of have to separate into new companies. And this basically creates a lot of uncertainty in the market. And this is at the same point where I mentioned suburbia. There's this lot of big questions about what is known as, quote unquote, the lost audience. Where have the audiences gone? Because just movie attendance, it's dramatically uh, dropping. And then you also have all these um, actors and directors and what have you starting to form their own independent small companies. They're, they're just themselves, basically, in a way. Uh, a lot of 
of this begins in during World War II, driven by tax incentives, uh, because basically if you were a star in Hollywood, the amount of money you were being taxed was 90% of your income, uh, which is wild to think about yeah. that you're paying 90% of your income to the U.S. government. Um, but if you form your own company, it goes down to 75% around that, <laughs> depending on that, which is still a lot, still but high. like, you know. You can see sort of the drive and want to do that of just saving uh, income. Uh, there's a great article in, I believe, Cinema Journal by Eric Hoyt that's all about uh, this sort of tax move that a lot of actors make during this era. But you have all these independent companies. So when the, you know, the independent company owns, say, the director or the writer or the star. So now the studio has to negotiate with the independent company for that uh, star or director, what have you. And they will not employ the star themselves or what have you. But all these sort of shifts just create what I say is uncertainty in the market where um, the studios basically, they get rid of their script departments because there's enough people writing scripts that they can just buy out there. Uh, they start to close down their studio lots and just rent them because the studio lots aren't they're not making as many movies anymore so you don't want that sort of thing they just become more independent financiers they're just going to sort of finance a film and you know pay the money to rent a dover if not necessarily their own studio lot a different studio lot and there's just a lot of sort of more space for negotiation it just becomes a sort of horizontal playing field versus the vertical inner uh the field of course the studios still stay at the top because they have the money which, of course, is the most important thing. Um, the only studio that ends up not surviving this uh, post-Paramount era is RKO, uh, which mostly is run into ground by the meg uh, megalomaniac uh, Howard Hughes because he is Howard Hughes. He's making a lot of poor financial decisions. and making... John Wayne as Genghis Khan. Exactly. And there's a lot of lawsuits. There's a great line um, at a luncheon in Hollywood in 1952. The actor Dick Powell says that uh, RKO now has more lawyers on its payroll than actors, uh, which is <laughs> just like this hilarious image. And I imagine Hughes was very, very upset at that. Um, but you just have this space where no, you know, the the sort of vertical integrated studio is just shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. But they still have all this finance and capital and live in sort of this uncertainty about what they're going to do. So they are more interested in just. Um, financing one picture for something, two pictures. And this is also the rise of these major talent agencies. Uh, William Morris, MCA are the two big ones of the era um, where these talent agencies sort of pair together a writer, actor, and director and form a package and go to a studio and be like, hey, if these three people make a, m a movie based on this book, um, you know, it's going to be a blockbuster. You can't lose, what have you. And studios are more interested in trying to make those movies than something else. And for now, are we seeing the shift from employment contracts to more independent contractor contracts with the artists, directors, and actors? Exactly, 100%. You know, some of the studios keep... Um keep churning and keep people on payroll, particularly Warner Brothers, which gets uh, invested in television. Um, in the 50s, there's a really great book by Christopher Anderson called Hollywood TV that's all about how the studios get involved in television production because television is cheap, what have you. They uh, Some of the studios do keep the lights on, so to say. They still keep um, you know, just churning out uh, whatever they can, but a lot more of it is going to television now, these you know, television programs of the 50s 
50s, like Cheyenne, uh, all these sort of Westerns, Dragnet, what have you, are two of the things that Warner Brothers does in particular that are quite popular. Um, but in terms of films, it's nobody wants to, you know, own or, you know, have these long-term contracts because what's the worthwhileness of this? Because, you know, think about a long-term contract. If you're only going to employ someone to make one or two films a year, but you have to pay them a full year, that's that's not good. If you can instead say, okay, here's $1.5 million to make this film, and we're gonna we're just gonna give that money to this independent company. And that independent company has to create a freelance contract with um all the negotiation uh all the cinematographers, the gaffers, the electricians, what have you, sometimes will provide sort of that space. And I, I talk about in the paper pen to putting pen to paper, the the um joke being Arthur Penn is the director I talk a lot about in that paper. Um is Warner Brothers kind of wants to keep the studio model going. A lot of the other studios are immediately getting out of the game and just being like, here's the money, you produce the film, you're going to be responsible for creating all the contracts for the employment, for the studio rental or what have you, and we're just going to deal with distribution. We're just going to, we'll do some of the advertising, the publicity, and we'll get into theaters both in the United States and around the world, but that's our role in this. You take care of everything when it comes to actual production. I think what's interesting and what um, your dissertation is so interesting is how this change in contracting can affect the artistic output in cinema at the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is, we're talking about the new Hollywood era. This is when a lot of people consider to be the greatest output of American cinema where we have, you know, Easy Rider, pen to paper, you talk about Bonnie and Clyde, Mm -hmm. Godfather and so on and so forth. So I think that's, a really interesting aspect of your papers. Yeah, and I think one of the weird ways is, and um, one of the things that I'm trying to challenge actually through this paper is like, how does this myth of the new Hollywood artist regime sort of get created? Part of it is it's a public image, right? It's it's yeah. it's it's valuable for these studios to kind of have these daring renegade uh, writer, directors, actors sort of added. And even if they're bashing the studios, it doesn't matter if they make money, right? This is ultimately at the end of the day. Who cares what they say? Who cares if it looks like the inmates are running the asylum as long as the money's coming in? And I think one of the things that I talk about through pen to paper and what I'm really focusing is the studios become much more financially motivated in this era in a different way than they were in the 30s and 40s. Of course, they wanted to make money, but they're much more interested in the liquidity of money in this era and how they can sort of just guarantee money. I mean, a lot of people now talk about, I was just talking to a friend of mine who's a uh, director and he was mentioned, uh, uh, I was mentioning his contracts. It's like, so do you get any um, gross profits? And he was like, no, I got some net points. I was like, oh, so you'll never see money. The, there's a joke right now going, I, this story gets published every uh, so many years, but people know the Star Wars film Return of the Jedi, uh, which was the last of the original George Lucas trilogy. And famously, that film is still losing money by Hollywood accounting. And mostly that's so the people who got net profits will never see those profits. Of course, that movie made millions and millions of dollars, but it's set up in a way so that that film will never make money. And the studios start to figure this out in the 50s and 60s is it's really dangerous to bring on something like Arthur Penn and Warren Beatty to make this sort of homage gangster film that's really influenced by French films or what have you. But if they can make a contract that guarantees that at least they can make back their money, 
and, you know, then we can pull off whatever's on the top from that. They sort of start to set these barriers in terms of how much money a film should make just so we guarantee our own money. And because they don't have to worry about all these labor costs or what have you, that becomes just the question is like, how do we just guarantee that we make back the money that we invest in this? And I think that's what's happening. And of course, the era that means that when it comes to the creative element, it's like there, you know, Jack Warner, the head of... Um, Warner Brothers, of course, he lasts basically until Bonnie and Clyde in 1967, and then he's finally forced out, and he's kind of the last of the great moguls who's just, you know, chomping his cigars and trying to control everything on the studio lot. Uh, there's just so many great Jack Warner stories. I'm obsessed with this guy. But it's just really, he doesn't have control anymore, and the people who are running the studio aren't really interested in that creative control as much as they're interested in just bringing on the creative artists when and they are valuable in certain ways. And as long as they make the decisions to not run the studio into the ground by taking up too much money, it doesn't matter what they do in a lot of ways. And that's what, you know, and there's all these hidden self-regulations in Hollywood, that I think, though, uh, that come up, whether it's the production code, which is the major censorship code until 1967 that gets replaced with the rating system that we have now, or the fact, again, as I mentioned before, if your film dies you're not going to get to make another film again. Is this all, um, does this financial barriers also come about because of the fact that the studios start becoming part of these major corporations? Like I believe Paramount was Gulf Western yep. in the seventies and things like that. Yeah, definitely. I think it's part of it. I, I'm sort of, the, I'm theorizing that a little more in what I hope to be uh, the book that I do after I do this entertainment law book. That's more about corporate ownership and sort of these sort of uh, these, uh, um, what I call the alienation of capital in a way instead of the alienation of labor where the people at the top are less and less interested in the actual products that they create than the number that's going to be on you know the stock report that goes out to their shareholders at the end of the day if you can say the you know if you're Gulf Western and you have Paramount and Paramount is a line on the stock thing that says oh, this is the amount of money that, you know, this studio was in the black. That's ultimately the care. Now, sometimes actually in these stock reports, they say, you know, look at these great films that we produced. And it's always great if you can say Gulf Western can be like, you know, we produced these really, really great, important works of art or these popular works of art or what have you. Um, but I think ultimately it's sort of driven by this money era. And of course, the studio I haven't mentioned that I really need to pour in because I think it's the other major important factor is this, is there's a studio formed in 1919 called United, United Artists. It's this independent company that's created by the stars Mary Pickford and um, Charlie Chaplin. And then the director D.W. Griffith, most famous for Birth of a Nation, this uh, film about the riot. Uh, the rise of the Ku Klux Klan uh, that sort of actually... Was Douglas Fairbanks also part of that? Yes, yes. He starts it. Uh, he eventually gets out of the company and he dies pretty early. Um, by the 1950s, um, Mary Pickford and Charlie Chaplin are the owners of it. And they basically give it to two lawyers in New York who had been running a small B-movie studio called Eagle Lion that did a lot of independent production. And these guys are really, really smart. The two guys are Arthur Krem and Robert Benjamin. And they are like... All of our studios, we don't have a lot. 
we've never had this. It's always been about independent production. We've never had a lot. All we're going to do is finance movies. And they become really, really well pop. They make a couple big hits right away. The African Queen with um, Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn. And then High Noon with Gary Cooper. Um, and then they have this big Oscar winner in 1955, this film Marty, which is sort of this small prestige film, right? It's based on a television episode written by Pat Chayefsky who would later do Network. And it's basically, you know, a small intimate drama uh, that sort of forms a different type of movie than sort of the prestige, great, glossy films that Hollywood had been making for Oscar winners earlier in a way. But anyways, United Artists is just so smart about the way they write their contracts and the way they do money is that no film should lose money. That's that's basically what they're going to create. They, they finance a lot of movies through, once they get to the 1956, 1957, they're doing more movies than any of the studios are doing. They're doing 70, 80, but they're not losing money money on a single movie just because they are the ones who start to set up these really, really great contracts. And they love to promote the fact that they let people have creative control and they let people make the films they want to do. Uh, Kirk Douglas, the actor who forms his own uh, production company in the 50s, loves working with the United <laughs> Artists guys. And he loves to say that I get to control the movies exactly the way I want to do. But the thing that's most important for United Artists is that they're guaranteeing no matter what that they make money on every single film because of the way their contracts are set up. Now, I don't know if you looked into modern-day contracts, but the way you just described United Artists kind of reminds me of the way Blumhouse Pictures currently works mm -hmm. in the sense that they're, they make a lot of movies a year or they acquire a bunch of movies a year, and they yep. have this strict model of what artists they work with, and they all seem to make a lot of money, whether it's through traditional theatrical distribution or selling it to a Netflix or something like that. Yeah, yeah, no. And I mean, there's a lot of ways that the studios still sort of do this. I mean, one of the things that like, um, example of like what Blumhouse does or a lot of studios, like you might hear a thing called pre-sales. Um, so, yeah. so the, the most important, um, uh, film festival still today is the Cannes Film Festival that happens mm -hmm. in, uh, in Cannes in southern France every May. Uh, the really great chapter about the history of Cannes and actually how it's more of a money-making place is by one of my advisors at USC, Vanessa Schwartz. She has this book, It's So French, that's about Frenchophilia in the 50s and about how Cannes basically sells sex and occasionally art at the same time. But in addition to the Cannes showing these films, these important art films by you know the major directors of the world, there's this other part of it that's the marketplace. It's literally called the yeah. Festival du Marche, um, where people bring films, whether made films or just, like I said, writer, director, actor, and they do what's called pre-selling. They pre-sell the film to a market. So, um, you know, a Russian film or even a Chinese film or whatever is selling uh, the rights to India or say, or I don't know, Japan or what have you. They're like, we want a million dollars. We haven't made this movie. We might not even have a script. <laughs> they just have a but poster. we want a million. Yeah, we have a poster and we want a million dollars for the rights for you to distribute this film in your, you know, in your region or what have you. And if it's the right package or what have you, they agree that. And Blumhouse actually works, I think, a lot of ways. A lot of their films are pre-sold to Netflix before they've even produced them. Um, and, you know, 
then they'll make them eventually and, you know, they'll do whatever. And I think I always say, like, the biggest tellers and what I write about in that article on pen to paper is the films that make more money than anyone necessarily expects are the films where Hollywood actually, quote unquote, loses, where the contract doesn't work. Um, As I mentioned with Bonnie and Clyde, it's this film that basically where uh, Warner Brothers decides that it's going to get five up to $5 million of the gross of all the profits that come from the film. Warner Brothers gets the first $5 million period. Um, it's a film that's made for about $1.6 million, if I recall. So it's a... It's a, rel- it's a smallish movie, but it definitely is taking a little more capital. It's a medium-sized movie. It's got a couple stars, so, right, it's like they're putting some money into it. But they basically want it to make $5 million. That guarantees them, essentially, they've made their budget, they've made all their distribution, and they get, like, about a hefty, a, a good solid million or $2 million in profits. Bonnie and Clyde makes $25 million. <laughs> and the thing, of course, they promise Warren Beatty is of the gross profits of the film. (laughs) And that's the thing they don't want to happen is to give Warren Beatty essentially what, you know, if you think about $20 million, 40%, uh, if my math is right, $8 million. They don't want to give Warren Beatty $8 million. They just don't expect the film to gross that much. And I think a lot of the ways that Hollywood still operates or works is that is when these things make too much money. Um, Uh, George Lucas gets famously a deal from 20th Century Fox when he makes the first Star Wars film for 40% of the gross profits plus all merchandising because they think the film's going to be a bigger, a big flop. And when the film does well, the studio loses. And I think this is actually one of the weird ways that really flips it from the 1930s, 40s model is that films that do too well are the films that lose for Hollywood in a lot of ways. Interesting. Now, I'm also curious about what drew you to entertainment law as a way to go into film history because a lot of people don't think about going into film history through the aspect of entertainment law. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, really just because I've got archive fever in the way. So um, <laughs> my background is I, I, got, I did a, a film studies BA and MA in uh, film. I did a film studies BA and MA at Columbia University, and I was much more in the English um, English uh, degree style of critical interpretation. Originally, when I came to USC, I was going to write my dissertation on sort of the digital turn of Hollywood in the 2000s, looking at certain directors and their films as sort of representing various anxieties and innovations uh, around how digital was affecting Hollywood. And... I eventually said, absolutely not. I, I didn't want to do it. I, I, I got I got bored with the project immediately, and I was just like, I stepped entirely away. I was lucky I actually published a, a pretty good article uh, in Mediascape about time travel films in this era. And, and um, if you're interested in sort of um, the philosophy of time travel and what why Hollywood now makes multiverse films, films that are not made on a single timeline where, you know, think about Terminator, go, it's all of in one single loop, it's all continuous. And now Hollywood makes these t- um, films in uh, about, you know, where there's just so many branching uh, universes happening at the same point. And I think that reflects actually certain turns in what, digital Hollywood means in a lot of ways. But it was a different style of film criticism or film interpretation, and I became much more interested in history. And, I mean, actually, the big question then I mentioned this for is I was really interested in this myth of the new Hollywood because 
One, a lot of my favorite films from the 1970s are not the big films we remember. Uh, they're these films that are sort of made on the side or what have you. And a lot of the films that Hollywood is making in the 70s that we often forget are the towering inferno, the Poseidon adventure. Uh, you know, the biggest hit in the 1960s is Mary Poppins, right? It's not these artist-driven, innovative films. But there's something about that nostalgia for Hollywood in the 70s. Uh, people talk about this a lot when Mad Men was playing on television in the golden age of television. It's like, oh, it's just a reflection of what Hollywood used to do in the 70s. Like, why is this? And it was part of that question, um, you know, the art and the economics never lined up for me. And so I actually started the project with uh, John Frankenheimer, who I mentioned before, because he had come from the live television era. I was really interested in these people who had worked in television in the 50s, which included Robert Mulligan, who did To Kill a Mockingbird, Arthur Penn, who we've talked about. And I was like, how did these guys sort of get written out of the story of new Hollywood in a way, because the live television people coming to Hollywood seems like the first point in which there's an innovation by a poaching of talent um, from somewhere else. Of course, Hollywood had poached a lot of talent from Germany through the twenties and thirties, uh, particularly because a lot of people were trying to get out of German. These are yeah. directors like Fritz Long, FW Murnau, but anyway, so I was interested in the fifties. So I go on my first research trip to the, uh, uh, Wisconsin Historical Society, which is located at UW-Madison. Um, and I'm going through the papers of a lot of these people who are working in television in the 50s and 60s and looking at their films, and particularly their archives, where felt like, to me, <laughs> almost all legal materials, mm. contracts, negotiation for contracts, back and forth, back and forth. And it's not just the lawyers going back and forth. The writer-directors are writing memos as well about what they want to see in the contracts. And I'm like, this is a lot of material. Now, I had worked uh, just to pay off school bills or what have you at a law firm in commercial real estate in New York City uh, for this lawyer, Joshua Stein, who I really has been a great mentor for me as I worked for him for many years. So I, you know sent him a couple pages of one of these contracts that I scanned in. I was just like, I just want you to look at this. And what do you make of this? He's like, you know, it's not too different from the real estate contracts. Yeah. Like, you know, you can read this, right? It's not that different. I, I think I was scared because I don't have a legal training beyond what I did with uh, Joshua uh, to really understand. So I start to look at this. I'm like, this is interesting. And why are everyone, it seems archivally at least, and I know the archive doesn't reflect the full totality of history or what have you, but everyone in the papers I'm looking at is just obsessed with contracts. Why is this? And so I try and go find, well, is there a book on contracts and negotiation? You know, a lot of people talk about talent agents in this era and the talent yeah. agencies are really, really big, but nobody had talked about the lawyers and the contracts or what have you. And I was just like, that seems really, really critical and really, really worth it. And originally, I was just saying the entertainment lawyers and the law part is going to be one chapter about this transitional era. And more and more, I realized that that isn't enough. The entire project needs to be about how the changes in how lawyers and these law firms are becoming centralized to this new network of Hollywood seems to be what's driving a lot of these changes in the 50s and 60s. So that's kind of how I became obsessed with this project. And going through all the archives, can you talk a little bit about what was your the coolest thing that you found? Oh, man. Something memorable? 
I mean, there's, gosh, there's so much. I'm trying to think. Um, well, just recently, I was really excited. Um, the the main lawyer, and so the title of the dissertation is When a Handshake Met Someone. Uh, sorry, three, two, one. The title of the dissertation is When a Handshake Meant Something. And it's actually the title of this memoir, this unfinished memoir by Leon Kaplan. Leon Kaplan's kind of the central character of my dissertation. His law firm, Kaplan Livingston, uh, dissolved in 1981, but it was the biggest law firm in Hollywood that only did entertainment law. At their height in the 70s, they had, I think, 71 or 72 lawyers. Uh, entertainment law firms are notoriously small, and there's reasons for that uh, that I talk about in the dissertation. Um I love Leon Kaplan. He seems like the greatest guy to me. I think he was one of those people who genuinely cared about uh, negotiation and copyright and really wanted his clients to do the best thing. He turns down a job to become the in-house counsel for United Artists, particularly because he wants to work with the artists themselves. He finds that much more valuable and interesting in this era. And he builds this huge client base through the fifties and sixties. Uh, and I mean, I got to see his lost memoirs because I, worked in time in the garage of his son, who is actually an entertainment lawyer, Bob Kaplan. Um, and so I found a lot of materials, but it was just on my last trip. I was going back through the Kirk Douglas stop of, at uh, university of Wisconsin, Madison, because on that first trip, I didn't know I was doing an entertainment law dissertation. <laughs> so I had to go back and now I'm doing an entertainment law dissertation. And I was really excited. I found this long memo that Kaplan, uh, Kirk Douglas's production company, which Kaplan is the lawyer for, um, gets a new accountant at some point. I believe it's an accountant. And um, Leon Kaplan writes an 11-page memo to the new accountant says, these are the 11 negotiation points that matter to an independent producer. And just lays out in this great prose and everything, what is an important thing that basically I'm going to do on every contract I want to say? And I was like, this is like the Rosetta Stone <laughs> of like exactly you know, a lawyer explaining what is important to him and his philosophy or what have you. And it was just really, really cool to just see that kind of laid out. I mean, the contracts are always cool. I mean, there's always something yeah. weird that you notice. And like, you know, I always say it's like, you know, you, I, I've had to sort of train myself to read these things and look between the lines. And, you know, it's just like I say in a lot of people, some people had to study Spanish so they can read Spanish language material for their dissertations. I had to learn how to read contracts, right? That's the language which I work in. And so you have to always think something. And I think, you know, as they teach in first year contracts, everything is there for a reason, whether it was precedent in something else or because they're worried about something. And you always kind of want to pull and look through those and figure out what those are. And sometimes you're right. Sometimes you're wrong. It's an interpretative, uh, an interpretive guessing game, but that's the exciting part of working with archival materials. You're always interpreting and guessing why something is written in the archive for a reason. Have you taken any law school courses such as contracts or legal drafting just to familiarize yourself with the language? I did first-year contracts at USC Gould School of Law, and then I also did a class that was sort of a cross-disciplinary class between uh, law and the business school, uh, Marshall Business School at USC, called DEALS, um, the 
um, the co-professors on that one were Jonathan Barnett and uh, Mark Weinstein, both who've written actually about Hollywood contracts and written some really great material that I've used sort of as uh, building a lot of the ideas in my dissertation. And it's really great because it was about the negotiation process and, you know, how to think about these from a business perspective or what have you. And then, of course, uh, I've been really helpful that um, my outside committee member on my dissertation is Catherine Fisk, who now teaches at University of California, Berkeley, and her two books on copyright, um, uh, working knowledge, and writing for hire, which both in part deal with Hollywood, are really, really helpful. So I've just been able to sort of build a sort of baseline and luckily not have to sit through three years of law school. I think that's <laughs> a little past my prime now uh, because ultimately I'm aiming to become a media studies uh, you know, academic versus mm -hmm. someone who teaches law necessarily. I love working in law and I hope to, you know, someday teach classes on media, law, history, uh, dealing with how law has sort of inflected media industries over the years, whether we're talking about contracts, but really, you know, co uh, copyright, censorship, uh, you know, antitrust, these sort of major themes that come up when it comes to media industries. Uh, but I will never call myself, I think, a legal expert <laughs> in the way that, you know, someone who's going to law school will certainly uh, feel and be like that. And one final question before we go, something that I want to start asking all of our guests is what was your favorite piece of IP from this week? Okay, so there was something really, really great that I was thinking about, and I think maybe I'm defining intellectual property in a sort of broad way or what have mm -hmm. you, but it deals with some serious questions. So um, uh, last week, or maybe it was a couple of weeks ago, I don't know exactly, what, or I'm not remembering exactly when, um, the Library of Congress puts together this thing called the National Film Registry every year yeah. where they deem 25 significant films and they kind of choose from a diverse set of uh, materials or what have you that sort of represent the broad range of media history. So th this could be documentaries, uh, home movies. There was, uh, I think last year, where home movies that were from an uh, all African-American town in Oklahoma in the 1920s. It was just this hmm. really rare footage. And then things like Jurassic Park. Park was on this year's list, right? So big Hollywood sure. films, just anything that's culturally significant. Um, the list itself is more of a publicity tactic, but it helps some certain rare films um, get um, apply for grants so they can preserve the films, uh, particularly on film, because digital is such a, a nebulous, um, often troublesome format to deal with. But if you preserve films in the right way, they can last for hundreds and hundreds of years on, you know, celluloid in a refrigerator, essentially. Um, I think the most exciting film on this year's list was this uh, 30 second film from 1898 that was discovered by Dino Everett, who is the archivist at USC and then co um, sort of cross checked in terms of the information by Allison Field, who teaches at UChicago. They called the film something good, Negro Kiss. It's a 30 second film oh, yeah. of two uh, African-American performers in Chicago um, performing a kiss for the screen because this is a time in which films were called actualites where it's just like here's something to look at and experience for 30 seconds you know a train arriving in the station or you know a little skit or something a native american dance or what have you um so these were two popular black actors on the south side of chicago who had made another film at Selig poliscope which was a company there and then they performed this kiss it's very reminiscent of this film that edison had made called the kiss that a lot of people uh that also had 
that starred to white actors, what have you. What was really cool, and I think the getting to the intellectual property side was um, uh, just a random person on Twitter who I identified as Kyle A.B., took the film and added the um, the music from this film that's uh, this uh, recent film that came out called If Beale Street Could Talk. It's a film from Barry Jenkins who made the film Moonlight that won the Academy Award uh, two years ago and won Best Picture. Um, if Beale Street Could Talk is an adaptation of a uh, James Baldwin novel dealing with a sort of black love and black life in sort of uh, New York Harlem in the 1970s. And so this random Twitter user took the score of the film from Nicholas Patel and put it over the film. Barry Jenkins saw it and retweeted. He was like, I love this. It's great to see, you know, because um, the film would not have had sound in 1898, Mm. but to sort of see this combination of, you know, music from my film on this. Now, at one point, you could say this is a lot of intellectual property stealing. You can't just take, you know, my music, put it on your film or what have you. But I kind of love this moment. I think it's where, um, you know, there's a lot of issues with intellectual property and copyright, or have you, but yeah. where everyone just agrees this is ultimately a good and just sharing this and having this out there is more exciting than, you know, any sort of what we could say, you know, just um, uh, like suing this, be like, no, you can't use the music on my film because <laughs> it just so celebrates the film itself celebrates both the film from If Bill Street and I think Negro Kiss sort of celebrate black love in a way that we don't see and help sort of restore this idea that, um, you know, there's this other part of African-American life that's not just living in a state of racism and pain. And I think that's these two sort of working together was just really exciting for me. It's a re- um, I saw the footage on Twitter and it's a really beautiful piece of footage mm-hmm. and it's a great score. It certainly is. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I have to say you are one of my favorite voices on cinema today. I listen to your podcast religiously since probably 2013. Oh, thank you so and, much. And it's so nice to get to talk to you and to talk about movies and law, two of my favorite things. Thank you so much. I am so often get asked to mostly talk about movie stuff that it's really always exciting when I get to talk about law stuff. And I apologize to anyone in the audience if I said <laughs> anything uh, incorrect legally, but, you know, we're all, we're all in training. We're all sort of just trying to make our best in this, and I think when we work together, we do our best. Is there anything you want to plug, either the podcast or anything else like that? Yeah. Where can we find more of your work? Um, so my homepage for my sort of academic homepage is www.labuzamovies.com. I sort of collect my CV and I'll links to some of the writing I've done in the past for The Village Voice or Kina Lorber or what have you. Um, my podcast, The Cinephiliacs, is sort of a media studies podcast, maybe kind of similar to this, where I invite experts on to talk about their work, their biography, talk about a film they love. It's It's a pretty diverse range of topics. I mean, uh, you know, we've had people like uh, film critics like Manola Dargis and A.O. Scott from The New York Times, uh, filmmakers like James Gray and Alex Ross Perry, archivists, preservationists. I try and highlight the diversity of cinephilia and media studies in a way that uh, doesn't often fit the way that we just think about films in Hollywood. And I think that's, and I think the films that are discussed in the film, you know, I'd say just pick around on the archive. It's www.thecinephilix.net. And maybe you'll see something that picks your interest. And then I would say, try something that's totally outside of your uh, interest and you might get excited and learn something new. 
great. Thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you so much. It's such an honor. I really enjoyed it. The Fordham Intellectual Property Media and Entertainment Law Journal is a publication staffed by the students of Fordham Law School. Our faculty moderator is Mark Garrison. Our Volume 29 editor-in-chief is Jeffrey Greenwood. Our managing editor is Michael Rivero. A sincere thank you to Pierre Labuza for making this episode possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. You can follow us at our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Fordham IPLJ. You can also visit our website at forumiplj.org for our daily content. I'm your online editor, Patrick Ho. Thank you for listening and see you next week.